Welcome, everybody, to our ongoing nightclub interview series, where my guest today is uh, the leading integral theorist, Dustin DePerna. But as usual, before we get started, a few housekeeping items. Starting October 30th, right around the corner, and for two successive three-day weekends, I'm doing my deepest dive into the world of dream yoga probably my favorite program of the year. And after that, I'm taking a pretty big break until 2021 to catch up on a lot of writing. Now, as for my guest today, I had a total blast talking to one of the brightest minds in the integral world, brought a tremendous array of material. And as you'll see, Dustin is remarkably well-informed about the paths of waking up, growing up, cleaning up, and showing up. All four of these paths are critical and critically important if we want to understand and travel the path properly and safely. Honestly, I find it amazing how many people really get tripped up thinking that their spirituality or their meditation can handle everything. Why not augment your practice, your path, with sophisticated Western methods? So Dustin and I talk about states of consciousness, structures of consciousness, the importance of understanding vantage points. We also talk about the conveyor belt, trans lineage principles, how to facilitate growth, and just a ton of other compelling topics. I've known Dustin, a good friend of mine for years, but this is the first time I've seen him share his brilliance at this level. And he speaks from direct experience, not just as a scholar. For me, it's this unique blend of scholar practitioner that makes him so special as you will see. Hey, welcome, everybody. Andrew Holacek here. And I can't tell you how uh, delighted I am to be spending the next few minutes with one of the finest minds that I know that also happens to be one of my dearest friends. Um, it's an absolute twofer that I get in my wonderful relationship with Dustin DePerna. So as usual... I will read an abbreviated version of this remarkable individual, and we're just going to jump right in. Um, there are a lot of really rich topics that we're going to be uh, tossing back and forth here. So, so Dustin DePerna is a recognized expert in meditation, positive psychology, and spirituality. Through his facilitation and writing, Dustin makes timeless wisdom relevant and accessible to the modern practitioner. In 2009, Dustin founded the publishing house Bright Alliance as a platform to release a series of carefully curated books on human potential. Bright Alliance has published many sacred texts, including several translations of advanced Tibetan meditation masterpieces that have never before been distributed in English. In 2017, he joined the core team of Evolve Foundation, where he teaches and helps to facilitate events internationally. He shares his wisdom regularly in the U.S. and China and is one of a hand-selected group of facilitators that teach every year at the Esalen Institute. Dawson currently serves as a co-editor-in-chief of uh, Credible Mind, an online platform dedicated to connecting users to the best evidence-based resources for mental health and spiritual growth. He also teaches somewhat regularly at Stanford University in their School of Medicine. Dawson is the author or editor of five books, including Streams of Wisdom and Purpose Rising, he holds an undergraduate degree from Cornell and a graduate degree in religion from Harvard. So Dustin, dear friend, thank you so much for taking time out of your really busy schedule to hang with us. We really appreciate it. Oh, Andrew, thank you so much for having me on your show. 
Absolutely. And and uh, one of the small things I did leave out in your bio, um, and that's simply because I want to start with it, is um, your incredible connection to integral theory and our, our, our mutual friend, Ken Wilbur. And so um, in a certain sense, so much of what we both do is is informed by integral theory. And you are one of the foremost um, theorists, I suppose we could say. And, and I always say it's only theory because we haven't experienced it directly. Um, I, I think integral theory is, you know, has probably more explanatory power than any other map of mind and reality that I've come across. And so I toss this term out somewhat liberally in, in a lot of what I do. But I would love for you to say a couple words um, from your perspective about what is integral and why should we bother? <laughs> yeah, gosh, great question. And, and you know, over the years, my, my response to that question has, has changed dramatically. But Andrew, before we even go into that, I just want to say mm -hmm. your, your work uh, has influenced my own thinking and my own practice in profound ways. I, the first time I came across Dream Yoga, uh, I read it in, in like two sittings. It's a pretty thick book, but oh, man, I just find your uh, articulation of, of Dream Yoga, Lucid Dreaming, Sleep Yoga, and your framing using the integral framework to be so incredibly clear. And so just from the start, just want to say how much I appreciate you and your work. And uh, I'm you, so Dr. thankful that this has developed into such a, a, a close friendship between us. So well, just that, appreciate that, you. No, that means a lot to me, my friend. Coming from, from someone like you, that's, that's delivered with great warmth. And so thank you for those kind words. Appreciate it. Makes, makes the, all the work worthwhile, doesn't it? <laughs> I, yeah, I feel the same way when I, when I get that kind of response. So thank you, Andrew. Thank you for who you are. You're welcome, my friend. Show. So integral theory. You know, my, my whole response to this particular topic has really evolved and, and developed over the years. But I, I usually like to say that, obviously, you know, anytime we're studying a map, you know, it's not the territory. Many people have heard that. And just like we can say that the meal is not the menu, and there's many other ways we can say it. But one of the things that Wilbur often said when I first uh, was spending time with him about 20 years ago, he said, you know, the map is not the territory, you know, but if you're in a prison and you're trying to break out of the prison, it's really helpful to have a good map. And so I look at integral theory as the best and most accurate map we have today to understand our own mind and our own experience of what's happening moment to moment. So integral theory as a, as a basic frame is a comprehensive approach to understanding what's the best of human knowledge and human potential that we can gather into one place, looking across broad swaths of time, so looking across historically, looking horizontally across different civilizations that have emerged on our planet, and really synthesizing it into a framework that can be comprehensive and as complete as possible. Now, one of the reasons I find integral framework to be so useful is its true balance of what we might call the interior dimensions of our life and experience and the exterior dimensions of life. So integral theory has this incredible way of balancing both the experiences that we have as individuals and the shared values we have as culture with those dimensions like the social economic systems that we're working in or the behaviors that people are, are, are enacting. And to me, a comprehensive approach is necessary in today's world, given the complexity of the problem we're facing. So to me, integral theory is the best and most accurate map to display what's happening in our current circumstances, and man, do we need it. Because the level of complexity we're facing as a human species requires um, a sophisticated map to understand what's happening. 
Yeah, that's that's really uh, really well said, Dustin. And one thing, let me ask you this: I, w- I was piqued by something you didn't mention just there about uh, integral and potentiality of of kind of relating, connecting interior and exterior. Sure. Do you think it has the potential to actually dissolve interior and exterior altogether? Um, in other words, it, it works obviously beautifully in the realm of duality relative reality. But both in your um, doctrinal understanding and experience, does it in fact have the potential to transcend itself? Can, can we actually dissolve the boundary, somewhat in the spirit of Ken's second book, no boundary, mm-hmm. between interior and exterior altogether? Well, I, I love the question. You know, as practitioners, we both know and um, you know, help others understand as much as we can this, this eventual collapse between interior and exterior. So in that way, you know, Ken's background is something that is based in his own study of Zen Buddhism and Dzogchen and Tibetan practices with Kali Rinpoche and others. So in fact, he's writing this material from a stance that intends it to be psychoactive. So the map of integral theory is a psychoactive uh, map. It's not just a static map. But when you really start to take this map on and understand it, it impacts the way that you have you directly experience your moment-to-moment existence. So it's not just a theory out there, but it's actually something that becomes deeply embodied. And I would totally agree with you, yes, that as this map is integrated and digested and metabolized in one's Beautiful. own system, there is a way in which it transcends itself. Um, the map is always useful when we're coming to sort of articulate the relative dimensions of our experience, but eventually the embodiment is so complete that, yes, all the interior exterior eventually merge or blend into a seamless whole. Yeah, beautiful. And, and, and also along um, the integral line here, because you are so savvy with it, and, and a number of your books deal with this, top, this following topic with such lucidity, um, and I have to say, when I bring this up these days, Dustin, I probably get more questions mm-hmm. about follow-ups here than almost anything these days, and, and I think rightly so. So you are an absolute expert in the difference, the relationship between states, um, structures, and vantage points. And so help us understand, especially structure stages and vantage points, um, and again, why it's so helpful to know about these in the spectrum of psychospiritual uh, evolution. Great. Well, it's such a, you know, one of the real breakthroughs of intro theory in general and some of uh, Wilbur's early work was, in fact, this key distinction between structures of development and what we might call states of consciousness. And there's a way in which we will unpack states in a further way, like you mentioned, uh, talking about vantage points, et cetera. But why don't I just start with structures of consciousness and states of consciousness as as a beginning point. So as many of your listeners may uh, be well aware. There's a whole field of study, sometimes called developmental science or developmental psychology. And this field studies what it means to grow as a human being and what it means to grow in sequential stages over time. And so many people would be familiar with the fact that you know, we go through these stages of life and these stages of life are marked by different sort of obviously physical and biological changes. But we also go through mental and emotional changes over the course of our life and we grow in our capacities and our intelligence and our sort of expansion of care and, and, uh, and complexity in the world. But in particular, I want to just mention that for the most part, human beings assume that growth actually stops once we reach adulthood. And what integral theory points out as well 
you know, that's not exactly the case. That there's, in fact, there are multiple levels of intelligence or multiple levels of development that people can move through that don't necessarily end when the adult you know, matures or reaches adulthood. But there are further reaches of what's possible for us as human beings. So one of the ways that I like to understand structures of consciousness is that structures of consciousness really are the operating system or the lens through which we're viewing the world. Nice. And that lens is made up of multiple different types of intelligence. So most of us think about intelligence and refer to IQ, or what we call cognitive intelligence. But breakthroughs in developmental psychology over the past 20 or 30 years have really pointed out that there are actually multiple different types of intelligence. So the uh, you know, the popularity of something like emotional intelligence would be one of those types of intelligence. There's other types of intelligence like uh, interpersonal intelligence or uh, moral intelligence, for example, or aesthetic intelligence or spiritual intelligence. So there are probably somewhere between 12 and 20 different lines of intelligence or multiple intelligence that human beings possess. Those come together uh, in various uh, modes to form this lens or this operating system that we see the world through. So when we talk about structures of consciousness, we're talking about these various levels of intelligence that can grow, that a human being can go through, and how those form the various worldviews that the, the people see the world through. So one of the ways that I like to speak about this in a more general way is to think about some very basic uh, language structures to, to simplify this. So when we start off in life, we end up seeing the world through an egocentric lens. Right. So I see my little daughter who's seven years old and she started to mature where she's having deeper compassion for the other people around her and her friends, her family. So she's moved from an egocentric phase where she was when she was two or three years old into an ethnocentric phase or, or a phase where she cares about her own tribe in a deep way, her family and friends. As she continues to grow through these structures of intelligence or structures of development, just be given the nature of our family structure and the culture that she's raised in, she'll very likely mature to a world-centric level of development, where she not only cares for the people in her own group or her own tribe or family, but she'll end up maturing into an appreciation for the human beings as a whole, even if they're not part of her own kin or family or tribe. So she'd move into a world-centric level of development. Understanding this progression from egocentric to ethnocentric to world-centric is probably one of the simplest ways that we might understand the progression of structures of consciousness or worldviews. And again, those levels of development show up across multiple different lines of intelligence, as mentioned before. So structures of, of intelligence, structures of consciousness, become the fundamental matrix or operating system through which we see the world. They are our you know, rose-colored glasses, for example. But those are very different than what we might call states of consciousness. So whereas developmental theory has existed for about 100 years in our Western culture, states of consciousness and the exploration of what happens in our own interior experience and the exploration of altered states has existed for something like 50,000 years. Right. So shamans and the early, uh, early people that we might call medicine workers in various cultures or indigenous healers, these people have been working with altered states for a very long time. So whereas structures of consciousness and understanding these developmental levels that can unfold throughout time in a human being's life, whereas those are fairly new to the understanding of what it means to be human, states of consciousness actually are, are ancient. These are things that we've, we've known for quite a long time. And as you and I have both studied deeply, one of the most sophisticated cultures to understand states of consciousness or the different ways that 
we can change our our moment-to-moment phenomenological experience. Uh, one of the cultures that's most advanced at that are the, is the Tibetan culture, which is probably one of the reasons that you and I have been so attracted to that. Yeah. Uh, as you know, that the Tibetan culture has uh, you know hundreds of thousands, or at least you know thousands of texts written on various states of mind. And these are some of the most sophisticated maps of states of consciousness that we have. So whereas, you know, we talk about structures of consciousness and refer to this idea of growing up, we might talk about states of consciousness and refer to the idea of waking up. So these two dimensions of experience are not the same. And having a peak experience or an altered state of consciousness is different than growing up through these stages or operating systems, which we refer to as structures of consciousness. So that's at least a place to start with the conversation, Andrew. And yeah. we can certainly go into a lot more detail. Perfect. And let's let's do it. Let's do it. But I want I want to um, just ping out a couple um, points here. One is I was immediately taken by what you know to paraphrase Chardin, you know, the great mm-hmm. <clears throat> paleontologist theologian. Um, and this this is important in terms of integral theory altogether because what it does is it, it just provides such a uh, sophisticated map of of evolution. And so what Chardin said, paraphrasing him, I love it, you know, evolution hasn't really stopped. It's only moved indoors. And so that's pretty much what's going on with us. Uh, Just because we've reached, and we don't know that yet because it's too early to say, some level of uh, kind of biological evolution, it it does seem in fact that now the, the trajectory does seem to be a little bit more internal in the way you were talking about it. And I think that's super important for people to understand that somehow, um, I mean, most people listening to the podcast, they've already, were preaching to the choir, but a lot of people are, you know, they, they suffer from a variety of, of, of arrested forms of development, of which ego is one. Ego is just an arrested form of evolution or development. So that's one thing I wanted to throw into the mix. The other thing, and, and I want to talk to you a little bit about this one, Dustin, because this one, this is super important. It seems that, you know, one way to talk about these, these structures, you use the idea of operating systems and lenses, to me, they're, they're like glasses we don't even know we have on. Um, right. And so in other words, this, this is what makes them so, so insidious and so dangerous. Um, and we can briefly talk about how this ties into, you know, all the just crazy spiritual religious scandals that are happening just eternally. Mm-hmm. And so we know, we don't look at these structures, we look through them. And so they're archetypal blind spots. And this is why the world hasn't really discovered it until the advent of, of the methodologies, principally from the West, using statistics and, and um, social sciences that allow us to suss out this data. You cannot introspect these stages. And, and therefore, you can meditate till you're blue on the face and you'll still be stuck at a structural level of development and not even know it. Um, so I want to just throw that into your court and see what your initial comments might be around that, because I think this is really important for spiritual practitioners who fall into this kind of single action bias that, yeah, on one level, and I would argue the, the teachings on emptiness, theoretically, they can handle anything, but practically it doesn't seem to work that way, does it? Um, and so I think a lot of people, and I, I look very closely at my own experience, because obviously we often see in others what we don't see in ourselves. Like, where am I stuck? What am I not seeing? So I, I think a lot of spiritual practitioners would do well, um, and as Ken says this, you know, to supplement their path. You're not, we're not talking to jettison, don't jettison anything. 
just augment your understanding of the complex nature of the uh, of the human entity with these skill sets so that you can then bring the appropriate methods, therapeutic and otherwise, that can save you, I mean, decades. I, I have to share the story, Dustin. I teach a fair amount around the world now. And it's amazing. I'm sure you've probably had this experience as well, where, where really wonderful people that I've developed friendships with, you know, I'll see them like every 10 or 20 years. And I can't tell you, Dustin, how, how often they come up to me griping about exactly the same problem they had 20 years ago. And they go see their guru or whoever and their meditation, their meditation instructor. And what do they say? Oh, you're not practicing properly or you need to practice harder. I don't think so. Um, and so I just want to throw that into your court because I personally have found this of extraordinary value in my own path. And I think it's something that would behoove any honest um, psychonaut, that's Bob Thurman's term for those who look within, right? Exploring the mind and heart to know about these blind spots. So I'd, I'd love to hear more about your take on that, both with your own experience and with the people that you've been working with. Great, Andrew. So one of the things I'll just start with is that I was so compelled by this idea of you know, waking up being one dimension of growth and growing up being a different dimension. So again, growing up through structure stages, waking up through states of consciousness. Both of these are important. But one of the things that really inspired me early on was uh, some, so a concept that Ken called the conveyor belt. Yeah. I don't know, Andrew, if you've ever spoken about this within your community, but the basic idea is that we usually look to our spiritual and religious traditions, and they give us amazing practices that teach us about waking up, just like you're saying. The teacher says, hey, go back and you know, practice harder. So there is a tried and true way of pointing out the nature of one's own mind through this process of waking up that's effective through pointing out instructions and through meditative injunctions. And we know that that works well and it's been around for a long time. But just as you're saying, that doesn't necessarily get at all of the dimensions of our mind and our psyche. So there's this whole other dimension uh, we call growing up. And so one of the things I was really compelled by was this concept of a conveyor belt. And that's that each of our world's great religious and spiritual systems can be interpreted through a number of levels of development. So in integral theory, we often use color codes and these other things to sort of, sort of get at some of, this, uh, some of these dimensions. But just really simply speaking, I really like the work of James Fowler. And James Fowler spoke about uh, something he calls faith development, or the stages that unfold, the structures that unfold uh, when one develops a deeper sense of, of spiritual intelligence. One of the things I like about his work is the way in which we might understand the world's great religious and spiritual traditions using this general lens. And so what he says is that when we start off uh, through these process of growing up within a particular religious or spiritual tradition, we usually start that with a sort of conventional lens. And with that conventional lens or conventional operating system, we basically take things as they are. We don't question a whole lot. And there's a way in which we take things pretty literally. So if the, if the teacher says something or if the Bible says something or whatever the sacred text says, says something, we take it without questioning. But as one grows up within that particular tradition and one matures to the next structure of, of development, the next level of development, one actually starts to get a little bit more independent in how they think about the tradition. And there's a sense of reflection and a sense of analysis of, you know, is this really what I believe? And is this appropriate for me or is this not appropriate for me? It's usually at that stage, if one moves from that conventional level to a more individuated or reflexive level or rational level, it's usually around that time when, when one might actually 
say, you know, this tradition isn't for me, turn atheist or agnostic within a Western context. Or they might start questioning the values of their own teacher or their guru or the tradition itself. And so from a developmental perspective, this is a really healthy aspect of growth. But unfortunately, what often happens when people move from that more conventional level to a level where they start to be a little bit more reflexive is that they, they see it as a crisis. They see it as a crisis in their own development. They see it as a crisis of faith. But one of the things I found really valuable is that when you actually understand these levels of development, you see that as a progressive move. You see it as a positive. Once one moves from that stage of individuated reflexive development, uh, Fowler starts to talk about a pluralistic stage where you begin to see, well, my tradition might have something of value, but it's not the only one. So you move from more of a exclusivist lens to one that's a bit more inclusive, where you begin to see, well, there's a lot of other richness and other traditions that can help supplement the worldviews that I hold. So we're not only limited to our own particular tradition, but we're now firmly rooted in a tradition, but then exposing ourselves to other ideas and uh, other ways of being across culturally. So I find that to be also very healthy in understanding that development. Yeah. And then finally, Fowler speaks about this, this final developmental phase where we want to move into what, what would be referred to as like a universal commonwealth or a, a way in which we begin to understand in a certain way our own tradition from a translineage perspective or from a perspective where we're still rooted in our tradition, but we're really seeing all of humanity as one tradition. We're seeing all of humanity as one great human exploration of what it means to be a human being, what it means to be interfacing with the divine and the spiritual. So the reason I bring that up in, in the level of detail I did is because this is a map that's so valuable across cultures and traditions. Whether you're identified with the tradition or you're finding your way in some other form, these maps of how we make meaning and the developmental stages that we progress through uh, just becomes a really fundamental way of understanding who we are and how we can uh, evolve in the world. So for me, understanding the structures of growing up and how one might progress and how one that might influence the one's relationship to his or her own tradition or meaning-making system becomes extremely valuable. So we no longer are in a world where we only emphasize this idea of waking up to our true nature, waking up to the ground of being, but we have to understand the process of growing up and how that growing up affects everything that we do in life and, and, and the lens that we see the world through. Yeah, I guess you're so articulate as usual. This is great. There are a couple of things that come to mind here that I want to just, again, just unfold with you a little bit more. Um, and I'll throw them out, then you can uh, riff on them. One is that, you know, I think one near enemy of this uh, extraordinary level of articulation is, you know, the near enemy of articulation is reification. Taking the, the extraordinary elegance of the map and actually freezing it, um, reifying it into a, a territory that, you know, reality is not this tidy. The re uh, reality is never as tidy as the written word. And so, Along these lines, you know, th there is tremendous both promise and peril, and I think this is what we need to suss out at the outset, behind creating these sort of psychographs where, where we have on one level this unbelievable articulation. Um, and, and the Tibetans are, as you know, they are about as, as articulate with this sort of thing as anybody. You know, I mean, they have list upon list upon list of stages, not only of how you grow, but how you die, right? And, and so, therefore, I think one near enemy that I'd, I'd love to get your comment on is the, the near enemy of typing the, um, uh, and even profiling, that you can use these extraordinary dimensions of human experience as levels of articulation, but we have to be careful not to slip into that um, propensity to type, to even profile on that level. And so that's one thing along that I'd love to hear a little bit more from you, Dustin. And also, 
you started to say something about this, but I, I wish you would say a little bit more. Most uh, spiritual practitioners have some sense of what catalyzes stages of waking up. I mean, that in many ways are what all the different practices are about. Outside of what you said, how else can one, in fact, catalyze growth through these structures? Does it, does it begin with actually um, understanding what they are in the first place, um, which is obviously what integral theory does and what we're doing here? But then how, how do you grease the skids? How, how does, I know this is an impossibly difficult question, but how does transformation really take place um, at the level of structures? Great, great questions, Andrew. Well, let me just speak to the first one, which is how do we avoid the reification that sometimes these models can uh, do in our lives? And that's, to me, these models are always secondary to the direct human relationships that we have. And it all comes down to being humans in relationship. And those relationships with the best that we can, if they can be kind, if they can be caring, if they can be mutually supportive and enacting, you know, that's really what we're going for. So for me, the map never circumvents the direct relationship between human beings. If we notice, and we certainly see this in, in integral community and in any communities that are really focused on concepts and, and maps, is that if we're not careful, then this can turn into an objectification of self and other, where we lose contact and we lose relationship. So for me, these maps are only a supplement to how we can be together and live a life in which connection becomes the primary mode of, of our contact. So in that way, you know, it's in a certain way preferencing the Sangha rather than the Dharma, Beautiful. rather than the Buddha. There's a way in which relationships is the, when we have all three of those, relationships become the mediating function to help prevent that particular air or that near miss that you're speaking about, that near enemy. Now, that's not to say that we want to um, you know, always privilege the Buddha or the Sangha or the Dharma, but that when these three live as a triad in harmony, it actually helps to correct for other potential errors. So in this case, Andrew, if I noticed that that was happening between either in my life or amongst other people, I would emphasize the Sangha dimension, emphasize the relational dimension, and really give that the, the, the prominence it deserves, because oftentimes that's getting circumvented when uh, people are reifying and, and typologizing people in ways that aren't, aren't helpful. Um, do you want me to go right into that question, Andrew? I want to leave space here for you. Yeah, well, let me, oh my gosh. I mean, yeah, let me just say one thing here, and then I want to have you continue, because you're, you're, you're just on your game, my friend. A couple of things come to mind. It's like what Thich Han says so famously, you know, the, um, the Sangha is the next Buddha. And, and this, it's very interesting. I read a, 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 a fine um, riff by David Brooks, who I, I, I'm, I'm a cautious fan of his. And he, did, he, he gave a very interesting kind of historical analysis of, of um, the current pathology and how it is that so much the transformation from we to I is at the heart of so much of, of the problem now. So self-centric. And so this kind of return to the Sangha, to the we, is incredible. And, and also deeply connected to this, Dustin, is I love what you said about relationship because I, I'm a, I just simply could not agree anymore with what you said, that, that on one level, there is only relationship. That's all there is. We always think of, well, relationship to what? Well, relationship to other relationships. There, you know, fundamentally, this is, a, 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 I think, a really important assault on ontology, a real important assault that even the way we view things, which, of course, is kind of force-fed by language itself, 
is problematic. And so this, this notion of relationship to me is absolutely important. And, and in Buddhist language, for the listeners who are familiar with it, this is what's called um, the dependent nature or paratantra, which is uh, the second of the three natures in the Yogacara tradition, which is fundamentally when they talk in provisional terms about, quote unquote, what's out there, paratantra is what's out there. In other words, dependent um, arising, dependent relationships. So I really wanted to throw an exclamation point on that. And in my estimation, and I think this is, this is what emptiness as a kind of general theory of relativity is all about that fundamentally there is only relationship. Relationship to what? To other relationships. Yes. And so therefore, oh boy, what does that fluid view of reality do? Uh, it, it inextricably connects us to not only every other person, but to this planet, which right now, this is, I would argue, this is the foundational reason for the ecological crisis, is this loss of, of relationship to this very mother of our being. So I wanted to throw that out before we transition, um, but that's what came to mind. Well, that's it for today. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. And a special thanks to Dustin for sharing his extraordinary knowledge. What a journey, huh? If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out all the other offerings on Nightclub. There's a whole lot going on right now. So until next time, pleasant dreams.